please open your Bibles to Genesis chapters 26, 27, and 28. How long is this passage? Oh my goodness. He's going to preach till 3. No, that's not true. Um, Genesis, uh, there's, a, there's a really weird section here, I, I think, and I'd, I'd, um, I'd really like to read what some theologians say about it, but there, there are two stories that seem to be uh, sort of overlaid here, and it starts in one place, and then it sort of gives you the first verse or the first little bit of this story, and then it says, now pause, I've got to tell you this other story, and then after it's done with that story, it's like, well, okay, now let's go back to the previous story. And these two stories are very much related, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the one and then the other. But I, I would encourage you to read the end of chapter 26 all the way through 27 and then halfway or so through uh, chapter 28 and kind of get the, the whole feel of it for yourself. But I'm going to preach the one this week, and I'm going to preach the, the other uh, actually on the 29th, uh, so in a couple of weeks. Um, so you're going to look at Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. And this, this is really about, it's about marriage and about who anybody should choose for their spouse. So especially you single people, uh, listen up and, and, and try to glean something from some of, the, from some of the, um, the characters in this story. But also, you parents who have children who you suspect will marry someday, you listen up too because this is largely about uh, parents' input into children that affect who they marry, okay? Uh, so it's a really interesting passage. It's got something, a little something for everybody. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us. We thank you that um, you show us just how big decisions are. Lord, we know that some decisions in life are very big decisions. But Lord, your word shows us just how big they are. Lord, we sometimes underestimate what our decisions do for our lives and other people's lives. Help us to never underestimate how important some of these decisions are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, it starts out here, Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, and it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah, all right? So Esau, we haven't talked about Esau in a few weeks, so let me just give you a little bit of, of, a, of a background on Esau. I looked for pictures of Esau on the internet and I found none. Or I, I found none that were worth sharing. I found none that I thought were very accurate or anything. Uh, and everybody knows that this is not Esau. Who is this? This is Gimli from the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, but he's big and hairy and red. Except he's a dwarf, so he's short. So just think of, think of here's Esau, but of, of, of larger height. Uh, we know that Esau uh, was an outdoorsman. He was concerned about uh, the, the wilderness. He, he enjoyed the wilderness more than the civilized areas. He was a hunter, a very good hunter. But in all of this, more than just, okay, you may love to hunt, you may love the wilderness, but for Esau, this was sin. It's not sin for you to go hiking and to love the wilderness and love hunting and the outdoors, anything like that. For Esau, it was sin. Why? Because really what he was doing was he was saying to the Lord, I want nothing to do with your plan for my life. And it's not just God's plan for Esau's life. It was God's whole plan of salvation because 
God is building a family that will turn into clans, that will turn into a tribe, that will turn into a nation, which will turn into the conduit for all of God's blessings and all of God's work in the world. And Esau said, I'd rather not. It's hunting season. Okay? I'd rather not. I don't want to be a part of what you've got for me and indeed for the whole world. And so as a result, Esau was swept aside in favor of his younger brother. Now, his younger brother was his twin, not much younger, okay? A few minutes younger uh, brother, Jacob. And it, we see that several times in the Bible where the older is swept aside for the younger. Cain could have been the recipient of all the blessings of Adam and the, the mantle that Adam had on his life, but no. Because of his sin, grievous sin, he was swept aside in, in, in favor of first his younger brother Abel, whom he killed, and then his younger brother, Seth, who received all those blessings of God. Seth became the father of the righteous line. Uh, it happens, uh, it'll happen again in the Old Testament when God sweeps away Saul. And Saul and David weren't brothers, uh, but Saul was this first king of Israel. But Saul didn't have it. He didn't have that love for God and that passion for what God is doing in the world. So he swept aside in favor of David. It happens many, many times in the Old Testament. It happens with Jacob and Esau. And I think even in the New Testament, you can sort of say, Judas, you don't get it. You are swept aside. Bring on Paul. Bring on Paul. And you see that Paul gets it uh, maybe more than any of the other apostles. So when one doesn't get it, when does, one doesn't want to be a part of it, God sweeps that one aside, brings in uh, the one who will. I was also going to point out, and th these people, uh, if, if you want to really study, study some Bible, look in, at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Because Eli is the high priest, and he's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they are the high priest, the leadership, the spiritual leadership of Israel. But they don't get it. And they are swept aside, and God brings in Samuel. And Samuel is not even from the priestly family. He has no right, by God's own law, to have this position. But God, I think, is looking at the priestly class saying, I chose you. I don't need you. Let me prove it. And here comes in Samuel, the great high priest in the Old Testament. All right. So one is swept aside, the other one is brought in. And Esau was swept aside. He, he, he sold his birthright. He cared nothing of God's call upon his life. And so God pushes him aside. Now, what we're going to see today is further proof that Esau just doesn't get it. He married. And he married outside of, uh, of their people, outside of their ethnic group. And a lot of people have used this story or stories like this in the Old Testament to uh, promote a, a racism, that the, the races shouldn't mix. The people are not supposed to mix like that. Um, white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, they're not supposed to mix. God, God wants them to remain separated. That's not in it at all. In the Middle East, they all are from the same racial stock. It has nothing to do with skin color. But God is, is making a very, clear, uh, a very clear dissection between people who follow me and people who don't follow me, people who share my view or want my God, my call in their life, we want to be a part of my plan for the world, and people who don't. And what he's saying here uh, in, in the Bible is, if you marry somebody from outside of that, you're going to bring in a lot of conflict and a lot of hurt uh, into your life, lives of your children, lives maybe of your broader family, and also my call uh, upon your life. He brought, in, he brought in a couple of Hittite women. Now, you probably don't know much about the Hittites. Let me tell you a little bit about the Hittites and every other ites that are really mentioned in the Old Testament 
they're very different from the Hebrews. The Hebrews, starting with Abraham, have a very distinct feature in their life and heritage, their spiritual calling, and that is that they worship the one God. They are the only monotheists in the whole world, the whole world, or at least the whole Middle Eastern world. I, I, I don't think there's any other ancient culture who worships the one God, the one God of heaven and earth, who created and stains everything by himself. Everybody else worships a pantheon of gods. And God is setting up a people, a nation, a conduit of blessing that are all monotheists who only call upon him and no other God. And you might say, Wes, what does it matter? Who cares? Aren't all religions the same? And I think if you look around the, the, at, at a surface level of all the religions in the world, you may come to that conclusion. Everybody kind of believes in uh, something up there that created everything down here, and they all produce smiling people who say we should be kind to each other. And if that is the level that you look at it on that superficial level, then yeah, sure, maybe all religions are the same. But if you look into the fruit produced in people's lives, if you look into their home, and especially if you look into the attributes of their God or gods, and if you look at what is the ideal picture of the world that, is, uh, that this, this religion is trying to create or hopes for, I think you will see vast differences in the way the different religions of the world uh, are set up and what they believe in, what their heritage is. And anybody knows, anybody knows uh, that if you marry somebody from a very different religion, guess what? If those religions are important to either of those people, it's going to cause conflict. Now, if two people of different religions marry and they really don't care about their religion, then it doesn't make any difference. Those two people are practically atheists. They're just people who have a heritage and want to be kind to people. All right? And if that's all that their religion really is, then fine. They may work out just fine. They may work out just great. But if they really do want to practice and pass it on to their children, then there's going to be conflict. There's going to be, going to be conflict. Esau here has invited pagans into the Holy Family. Their family has this heritage of worshiping the one God. And he has invited polytheists and pagans into the mix. How's that going to work out? What does he think? Does he think that, uh, th that it's all just going to be hunky-dory? You parents, most of you parents in here um, would probably feel a little bit uncomfortable if somebody, if your child brought home somebody who was of a very different worldview than yours. How do you relate to this person? What does this person think like? How is this person going to fit into our family? Every holiday from now on is going to be awkward. Okay? That is the way you might feel about it. Let's see how Rebecca reacts. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, so this is Esau's parents. Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Now, that's a little dramatic, maybe. You may feel like, oh, isn't she overreacting just a tad? My life is not worth living. I'm disgusted. What in the world? Why is she reacting so strongly? But I'll tell you why she's reacting this strongly. I think she gets it. I think she gets it more than Isaac gets it. God has a calling on our life. God has a plan for our life. And my grandchildren are not going to be a part of it. That is a big deal. For you to have 
grandchildren who are of a very different belief system than yours, heritage than yours, who believe something totally different from yours. And now, in the Old Testament, they don't really have a doctrine of heaven and hell. But what if you thought, my grandchildren won't be in heaven with me. They won't share the same blessing with me. They'll be far from me. That is hurtful. That is very hurtful. That is a source of pain for your whole life. And it is what will take up most of your prayer life from here on if you find yourself in that situation. So she gets it. And you might say, Wes, I think you're just taking this a little bit too far, aren't you? But let me take, tell you how it worked out in the end for Esau's family, Esau and his family. Esau um, married these Hittite women. He became a nation of people as well, and they were called the Edomites. Esau has two names. In the Bible, a lot of people have two names, all right? Esau is his, was his given name, and we talked about uh, nature and nurture when the first time I introduced uh, Esau. Esau means hairy. He came out of the womb hairy. And so they called him Harry. What a terrible thing. Be careful about how you change uh, what you name your children and what you call them after that. Call them a dignified name. They might be more dignified. All right? But he was also very red, like Gimli. And so the other word for uh, his other nickname was Edom, which means red. All right? So he was red and hairy his whole life. And his people after that became known as the Redites. They are the red people. They were the Edomites. And the Edomites, pagans, worshipped many gods, lived outside the promised land. Remember, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the great promise of God is, your people will possess this land, the land filled with milk and honey. It will be your possession. You are my possession. The conduit of blessing from heaven to earth is going to flow right through here. Wonderful. Esau's going to live on the outside of it. His people, his Rebecca's grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all those descendants are going to be on the outside of all of that. And they're going to have war with Israel many, many times. They're going to live in contention with Israel. In the book of Obadiah, um, the prophet, what, what's happening is Israel's disobedient, and they're being carted off to Babylon in captivity. And the Edomites are like, yes. While the, just think of people in chains being carted off, and they're all like, I'm going to get your stuff. I'm going to get your stuff. That's what the Edomites are saying. And Obadiah pauses and says, you're next. It's coming for you. Ooh. And it all culminates. That's, as bad as that is, it culminates actually in the New Testament. There's an Edomite in the New Testament. You know who he is? He's the most infamous character in the New Testament. Herod. Herod. Isn't he the one that killed all the little boy babies in Bethlehem? Yep. And that is one of Esau's descendants. Esau, Jacob, Jacob, if he only knew, Esau, someday one of your great-great-grandchildren will kill off a whole bunch of my great-great-grandchildren in an act of rage, in an act of, that says, no, 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 I'm the king. I should have all the blessings, but you'll never have those blessings. So you're going to kill off some of the ones that do. Ouch! Oh, Wes, it's no big deal. It's no big deal who you marry. Oh, Wes, it doesn't matter if my kids or my grandkids are a little bit different heritage or me or, or whatever like that. The Bible says no. It matters. It matters a great deal. All right? So let me talk to you single people 
a little bit about um, choosing a mate. When, you, when you're out there dating, you tend to date people that you have chemistry with. Chemistry. Everybody likes chemistry, right? Uh, I got a D in chemistry. Chemistry, chemistry in this sense is good, all right? I want you to have chemistry with whoever you date and whoever you marry. I want that. I want to have chemistry with my wife. What is chemistry? Well, it's physical attraction, complementary personality, and that other certain je ne sais quoi that just means I like you. I like There's something here. We have a good uh, rapport, a good whatever. I want you to have that. But I don't want you to have that, but not complementary values that go together. I want you to have the same values. Values far more important than chemistry. What are values? Values are what you believe is most important in life. And you need to know what those things are and why they're important to you and to what degree that you, that, that you value those things. You need to know those things more than you need to know what chemistry is or have chemistry with somebody. Two people that of the same values, they can get along. They can make a house together even if there's not a lot of chemistry. And I think most of the of the married people in here will tell you, yeah, chemistry. Chemistry is moments. It's not always. But values are always constant. You need to find somebody of the same value system of you that, that you have. Uh, among the people, among the pool of people that have the same values as you, who do you have chemistry with there? Not just going out looking for chemistry and a couple of values or no values at all. Chemistry is not as important as that. Chemistry is great. Chemistry makes things happy. It makes flirtation, you know, uh, but it doesn't make a home. Values make a home. So what are a few examples of, of values? Religious beliefs, loyalty to your family of origin, okay? How important is the family of origin going to be in your life? How you earn and spend money, a big deal. I think a lot of couples will tell you, no, we don't value the same uh, earning and spending, and that has caused conflict in our marriage. And then, of course, one of the most important is, do you like or dislike the pseudo-Christmas song, Feliz Navidad? And this has, caused, this has caused more than one discussion in our family. Feliz Navidad is not a Christmas song. It is torture, all right? How many of you are with me? I don't like Feliz Navidad. How many of you like Feliz Navidad? Oh, I've got some work to do, don't I? Yeah. I grew up in a place with lots of Mexican restaurants. I've heard it. I can sing it. I just choose not to. But you also need to know your personality. Know your personality. And there are four different uh, personality types. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, work out there on personality. Sanguine. Uh, there are sanguine people out there. Sanguine people. Fun-loving, very social. How many of you would say, I'm very sanguine? Fun-loving, very social. How many of you would say, uh, I'm a melancholy? Now, melancholy people aren't, it doesn't sound, it sounds like it's depressed people, all right? But it's not really depressed people. They're just people who like things a certain way and in a certain order. They are planners and they know what they like and how they like it. How many of you are melancholy types? Yeah, all right. Choleric people, leaders, order givers, okay? How many of you are cholerics out there? All right. And how many of you are phlegmatics? You're peacemakers among people. You're very easygoing, Okay. Uh, if, 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 if people say, um, hey, where do you want to go eat? You say, I don't know. I don't care. Wherever you want to go. 
all right? When you're looking for somebody to date, when you're looking for somebody to date, uh, um, sometimes, sometimes you should marry somebody who's very different from you in this way, okay? Two sanguines getting married, it's just a party all the time, but none, none of the bills are being paid, none of them are organized, okay? Two melancholies get together, oh, and I, I pity them because they will have arguments about how towels should be folded, okay? A couple of cholerics, everybody knows what the other one ought to be doing all the time. And the phlegmatics will never, they'll starve to death before they pick a restaurant. So be healthy. Be healthy in who you are. Be healthy in who you are. Know your personality type and be healthy. If you're a sanguine person, be healthy. I want to have, a healthy sanguine says, I, w- I want to have fun, I want to be liked, but there's a point when I have to be serious and risk disappointing people. What if I'm a melancholy person? Well, be a, a healthy melancholy person. I want things planned and organized, too, but I have to leave room for spontaneity and uncertainty. Not just un- spontaneity, but uncertainty. Or else I'll drive myself and others crazy because I can't plan and predict the whole world. That's God's job. Be a healthy choleric. I want to be a strong leader, but I dare not become a jerk or a dominator. Okay. And I want to be, a, if you're a phlegmatic, be a healthy phlegmatic. Be easygoing. Be flexible as possible. But I can't be blown by every wind. And at some point, I have to care about a decision being made, and I have to have an opinion, and I have to stand for it. Okay? All of those things work together okay, to create a relationship that works. Solid foundation of shared values. A little bit of chemistry. Knowing yourself and having a healthy expression of what your personality is. Some people would say, ah, this is just the way I am. This is the way God made me. God made you a certain way. Sin made you a certain way. Be what God made you. Reduce the effect of sin in your life. It will be a very healthy expression of all of those things. And parents, um, well, first of all, do opposites attract? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, Opposites need to attract because... You need to have somebody that's a little bit different from you to balance you out, to balance you out, okay? But that's all matters of personality and chemistry. When it comes to values, opposites do not attract. Opposites conflict. You need to have somebody with different uh, personality that complements you, but the exact same, as much of you as you can, but the exact same value system. And parents, you can have some influence in that, too, by passing on values, and telling people how, telling your children how important these things are, and helping your children understand their personality and what they need to get under control. If there's a, uh, if there's a, an unhealthy expression of part of their personality, you need to tell them, hey, you've got a lot of fire in you. Cool it, because it can get out of control. If it gets out of control, you burn yourself, you burn other people. So keep things under control. Know yourself. Know your children. Tell your children. This is great about you. This is something you need to keep uh, uh, in, in sort of in control or uh, under wraps, or not under wraps, but uh, rein it in. And parents often, well, I, I think, underestimate the influence they have in their children's life. And I can tell you that that's not true. In the negative things, we see it all the time. Negative aspects of uh, a parent's effect on their children, we see that magnified these days. We don't see parents 
working to have that positive influence, but it can be there. It can be there. You can tell. There are a lot of times that people just sort of give up. Oh, you can't raise them. Oh, you can't tell them. Oh, you can't this. Oh, you can't that. But that's not true. You can. You can let them know what is important. And you need to find some teachable moments um, in our in our passage here. <coughs> Excuse me. In just a moment, Isaac is going to find a teachable moment in what Esau has done and how much he has distressed his parents. Isaac is going to find a teachable moment, and he's going to sit down and he's going to teach something uh, to Jacob. Those teachable moments are very important, and unfortunately, it's when the other sibling messes up. The other sibling has messed up very badly, at least with these others here. I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to tell, talk to them about it. I'm going to say, look, your older brother messed up royally, okay? This is what I want you to know. This is what you, I want you to know about how I feel about it, how you ought to react to it. This is sort of our position on what has just happened here, okay? And this is how I want you to behave toward your brother and toward me and toward everything else from now on. You might underestimate just how much you giving orders to your children might have. At least they know exactly how you feel about the way they're behaving. Uh, and I, I wrote down in here that there are certain ages, too, where your children are more teachable than others, all right? I have found that from zero to two, Elliot was pretty teachable, all right? He is now three. I expect around the ages of five to 12, I might have some more influence. Might be a little bit more teachable years. Maybe I'm wrong on those ages. You, you, you parents can tell me. And then after 12, well, come back when you're 25, okay? And maybe the, and that's just sort of joking. But there are times when you can probably tell my child is rebelling against me greatly right now. Forget it. Everything, every, every order that I give is going to incite them to disobey. So just forget it maybe right now. But after a mess up, after a big mistake, after they've hurt themselves in some way, you might find those teachable moments. You might find certain ages or phases that they grow th go through in their growth uh, where they're listening and they're modeling and they're, they're, they're doing things that you do and I would say, take, take advantage of those windows of time that you have to let them know what you think, how you feel, and what you wish for them. And everything that you know, and you might say, well, he's too young to understand this now. Phooey, tell them things they don't understand. Instill things into them that you say, uh, you're probably too young to understand this, but let me tell you anyway. You probably won't understand this. You probably won't understand this for years down the road, but I'm going to tell you now, even if you don't understand it. All right? I can teach my kids some great deep doctrine right now. They don't understand it. But at worst, all I've done is waste my breath. And I've got a lot of breath. Okay? All right. Let's look at Isaac finding this teachable moment. Now, this is over in chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman like your brother did. Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of your father's brother, or your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Yes, he married his cousin. Okay? The patriarch's family tree does not fork. All right? This is normal, apparently, in those days. May God bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham 
so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave uh, to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. And so Isaac, this passive parent that he's been, uh, finally got proactive. And he told his son, do this, don't do this, and your first step is go there. But he also tells him, we're part of God's plan. This is not just about who you marry. This is, this is a bigger thing than just that. God has a plan for our people and our lives and our future. And I want you to know that you are the heir to it. Don't underestimate your influence on your child. Tell them what you hope they will become, who you hope they will be, what character qualities you hope they will have. But most of all, Make sure that they know God has a calling on your life to be part, to follow him, to be transformed by him, and to be a part of what he's doing in the world. If you will pass that on to them, it will give them a certain dignity and a certain outlook on life that is different from other people. And there may be less of a chance that they grow up uh, not knowing who they are, being hopeless about their future. <clears throat> so take your children to the woods and sit down by a tree and talk to them. Show them how to tie a tie or do some other thing. Pass on to them whatever gifting God has given you. Make sure that they know it. And what of Esau? What of Esau? Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padanaram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padanaram. Esau is now uh, hearing how his father has raised the other child and saying, why didn't I get that? Why didn't I get that? Oh, I finally now understand. I have displeased my parents. I know. I'll go please my parents. Esau still wants to please his parents. Even though he has messed up royally, he still wants to please his parents. If your children have messed up royally, I want you to know uh, they still may want to please you, whether you think they have or not. But Esau still doesn't get it. So Esau learned, then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father, Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, the son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Is Ishmael, is he in the promise? No, he's not either. He might as well have married another Canaanite. He's married again somebody outside the promises of God. And he thought by doing this he would please his parents. But what did he really do? He just became more of a polygamist than he ever was before. And he increased the troubles of heritage in his family by 33%. Somebody else into it. Ouch. Poor Esau, who never gets it. Now, I want to talk to some of you. Uh, many of you have perhaps married non Christians. <clears throat> and I want to give you a little bit of hope. The Bible certainly commands us 
uh, and it uses this language. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally yoked with a, with a non-believer. And so here we have a draft horse and an oxen together. And actually, in the Old Testament law, it tells them, do not plow this way. It tells them, don't plow this way. All right? Very interesting. I think any farmer will tell you that this is not going to work out. Look, how, look at the difference in height. Okay? Their strides and everything. No, it's not going to work. These two animals are going to fight against each other, and then the oxen is going to bump over here and horn the horse, and the horse is going to get mad, and you are going to have trouble. Don't. And I'm glad we have mechanized farming now, but maybe the, maybe the application is do not use a John Deere tractor to, uh, to pull a Massey Ferguson plow. Paul talks about it in the, in the New Testament. Don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. And any of you who are or have been, you know exactly the, the kinds of conflicts that it causes. You know exactly the problems that it makes. Um, but I also want to give you some instruction. This, this is all in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read it. Everybody should read that. Um, it's very, very important. Uh, because he tells people, uh, if you're, first of all, he says, if you're single, stay single. But that's his... His, uh, his opinion for that time. But if you're going to get married, what do you do? You marry a believer. You marry a believer only. But remember, in the, in the Old Testament here, we're making a nation, and every single person uh, needs to be, every marrying, person, marrying age person needs to marry from within our heritage to create the nation that we're, gonna, that we're going to, um, that, that God is making. Anybody who doesn't, they're going to be cut off because we've got, we got to get that out of here. In the New Testament era, when people are being converted and coming into uh, the kingdom of God, uh, they come from all pagan backgrounds. Uh, not, not the Jewish believers, but the Gentile believers all come from these pagan backgrounds. They're being called out of their nation into another nation, and many of them are already married. All right? The ones who are not married, Paul says, no, 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 you marry within the church. You marry Christian people. But those of you who are being converted out of paganism, who are already married, what for you? What, what hope do you have? You're unequally yoked, uh, but the only, uh, the only reason you weren't unequally yoked at one time was because you used to be a pagan. Well, stop being a pagan. It's worth it to have all the marital troubles for you to save your soul. Come over here and start believing in Jesus. But you're going to have this situation. And what is Paul's advice? His advice, uh, you might guess that his advice is divorce. Get rid of that person. You're not going to be able to be happy. But that's not at all what he said. He values marriage, even an unequally yoked marriage, very highly and says, no, 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 do not get divorced. Now, if that person leaves you, fine, you can't do anything about it. And largely, he's talking about these pagan women who become Christians, and they don't, women didn't have the right to file for divorce in those days. It was only the, the husband's right. So he's telling women, if you convert to Christianity and your faithfulness to Christianity is such an affront to your husband that he divorces you, you can't do anything about it. Don't worry about it. But if you remarry, you have to remarry in the Lord. But uh, any of you, if you are a Christian and your, wife, or your, your spouse is a pagan, and um, they're kind of cool with it. They're okay with it. It's not causing terrible conflict in the house. They're, they are willing to live with you even if they don't like it. And Paul says, well, then you remain where you are. You remain where you are because this is what he says. You give yourself in this situation platform for evangelism. Because when you convert to Christianity, when you start walking with Jesus Christ, he will transform your heart and mind to the point that your spouse can't help 
but take notice and say, wow, you really are a different person. Wow, you really are better. Wow, you really are more joyful. What is the source of all of this positive change in your life? And then you, you earn yourself a platform to evangelize your spouse and to evangelize your children. You're stuck in a great place, in a great mission field where you don't know it, but you may just convert the whole lot. Okay? All right. And I, and I would contend that if Esau had converted his wives from their paganism over into the worship of the one God, things might have turned out just fine. But Esau didn't get it. He didn't even know that that was important. He didn't know that that was a problem to begin with. Poor guy. He just doesn't know. If you find yourself in this kind of a marriage, in this kind of a situation, from time to time you will lament it. Always be praying about it but always be passing on the new heritage, the new life that you've got. Always be talking about Jesus. Always be talking about the hope that you have. Pass him on to your children as the greatest heritage and legacy that you've got. You have no idea how that could end up uh, redeeming all of the descendants that you fear may be lost. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And I pray for uh, the people in here who are not married, who wish they were. And I ask you, Lord, that you help them to take their values very seriously. Help them, Lord, also to uh, know themselves, know their personality, know what would be good for them. And guide them to the right people. Lord, I also pray for those who find themselves stuck in a sticky situation. Help them to make the best of it, Lord. Give them grace to endure the difficulty, grace to endure the conflict. Help them to be joyful. Help them to be peacemakers. Help them to offer hope. Help them most of all, Lord, to offer their testimony of what a good Savior you are, what a good Lord you are. And Lord, help them to pass it on to their spouse, to their children. Turn their sticky situation, their what they may feel as an unfortunate marriage sometimes, into a great mission field and a place where they can proclaim, proclaim your love with both words and actions. In Jesus' name we pray.